from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. and familiars. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dark Mind Podcast, where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a writer that channels classical king into his own unique blend of supernatural horror. He creates horrific worlds within rural landscapes and takes the reader on a bumpy ride through plot twists that keep you on the razor's edge of your seat. He's joining me today to talk about his recent book, The Devil Within Us All. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of William F. Gray. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Vince. Excited to be on here. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me on this 27th day of August 2023. I came across your book on the Wicked House publishing website and was immediately drawn in by the title and cover of your book entitled The Devil Within Us All. And once I got into the book, I was completely hooked. The violence was extreme, but not gratuitous. Every character was unique and compelling. The villain was a very original, well-crafted psychological construct, and the story was completely unpredictable, especially when it came to who lived and who died. So I thoroughly enjoyed the book, and I'm thrilled to have you on the show. Awesome. Thanks for all the praise, man. Yeah, um, I wrote that book when I was really, really disillusioned with a lot of the predictability in media at the time, so that was something I actively went after was to kind of tell readers to expect the unexpected with it. Absolutely. Well played, sir. <laughs> <laughs> so the book is about a small town called Rappahannock Falls that is a quiet town with a population that's got its share of problems, but for the most part, it's pretty idyllic. Then one day, all the wildlife in the area started fleeing the town in mass to seemingly get away from some unseen predator. That is when a black Dodge Viscount with a dark character behind the wheel rolls into town. And from that point on, ordinary everyday people begin to snap and commit egregious acts of violence. So I had never heard of the Dodge Viscount before, so I looked it up and I found that it was made from the years 1959 to 1961 and was not very well known. 
So what is your connection to such an obscure car? And why did you want it to be the vehicle that was driven by a character that was pure evil? It's actually more cut and dry than you think. So I wanted to do a Plymouth Fury, but I said, you know, I want to do something a little bit different, a little bit more obscure. And it kind of fits into the theme of the character kind of always being in the background. He's been around for a long time. He's very careful to not be noticed because he understands the consequences of if people found out about him and his kind. And so the Dodge Viscount was A, because I wanted a Plymouth Fury, but I wanted something a little less known, kind of representative about how he lives his existence. Mm -hmm. And the Viscount was like a Fury ripoff back then. All the cars were trying to imitate each other. Oh, okay. So... Plymouth, isn't, aren't they kind of under the same umbrella or are those two totally different? I'm not a hundred percent sure, but, um, so I I'm was looking up, like, <laughs> me neither really. I was going to do the Plymouth Fury and I said, you know, I want to do something a little bit different along those lines. And so I looked up, you know, Plymouth Fury imitations or knockoffs. I don't remember what word I used. And I kind of went through the list a little bit because there's a lot of them that exist and Dodge Viscount. It was something that the body style was incredibly similar and I said, you know, this is the perfect car because it represents that lesser known idea. Okay. And even more of a detail added to the vehicle was the license plate on the vehicle said mana. And from what I can find, the term has multiple meanings in different religions. It's a Buddhist term for pride, arrogance, or conceit. It's a term that's equivalent to the philosophical term noose, meaning mind or consciousness. And in Finnish mythology, it's the realm of the dead. So it seemed like in the book, the characters that were morally upright were unable to be controlled by this very evil character behind the wheel of the Viscount. So what was the connection between Mana and the villain? So um, definition-wise, the definition that attracted me to it was that it's a pervasive and supernatural force, which is very much what Mr. Tanya stands for. But I was also familiar with the Buddhist meaning revolving around pride, because that's one of Tanya's greatest weaknesses. This is absolute certainty that he's relatively untouchable. He's careful, but at the same time, he puts himself out there. He gets into contact with these people that he manipulates, and he doesn't hide in the shadows entirely. He does believe that as long as he takes his calculated risks, he's not going to be caught or he's not going to come across anything that could possibly threaten his existence or his way of life. Okay. So he's not capable of just totally and completely remaining ethereal. He does have to hide. He can be found out even if he doesn't want to be. So, yeah. So it's a situation where um, I treated him almost as like, um, almost like in a supernatural way where he exists in the background and, you know, he pulls these strings and I imply that there are other ones like him through uh, several points throughout the book. And I kind of treat it almost like a secret society where he's not immune from being discovered and being found out. And I didn't really go too much into the mythology of him because if I do decide to do a sequel, I want to really expand on it in the follow up. But my idea of it was to treat him almost like a powerful figure, like in politics, that kind of thing, which was a huge, huge inspiration for me in that book was just like powerful people, no matter what walk of life they're from, religious, politics, anything, how they kind of have this uncanny ability to bring out the worst in others. And they also seem kind of untouchable because the risks that they take are calculated. And while they might be known to other people, they also 
hide in the shadows, hide their true selves in the shadows. And so in order to turn Mr. Tiny into a monster instead of just a man, I kind of leaned in towards the hiding in the shadows part. But he's very, very careful because if he does get found out, then it's a situation of what could happen at that point. Theoretically, if things like him exist, there might be people that hunt those things or it could just blow the whole lid off of it. And so he would not be able to operate necessarily anymore the way that he has for all these years. And as you said, in the way, is it in the Bible where it said pride comes before the fall? That, I believe so, yes. Yeah, that's been the fall of uh, gangsters, politicians, all sorts of unsavory characters. Is Even at its lowest form, just complacency, not so much a sense of yes. pride, but just getting used to getting away with shit. <laughs> you know, yeah, so. that's exactly it. Yeah, and I mean, even with good people, and I explore that later in the book with another character where his sense of pride is kind of his downfall mm-hmm. without going to spoilery territory. That certainty that, you know, he was going to be able to win mm-hmm. is ultimately kind of what leads him to make a mistake that leads to his untimely demise. Yeah. Well, so the inciting incident for the action of the story is a mass shooting, which are very real, terrifying events that happen in real life. And there are, in fact, multiple violent events in the book that happen in real life, including the murder of a physical abuser. So were the types of violent acts intended to represent the particular moral failing of the person committing them? And if not, what was the reason for the definitely out of character, but definitely non-random nature of the violence, which reflects the title, The Devil Within Us All? So I chose the situations that most of those characters found themselves in based on their characters, 100%. So Randall Connolly's is a little bit more random. His first act of violence that occurs before the mass shooting is more focused on his character, which is revealed during the scene a little bit. But at the point of the mass shooting, he's kind of just acting at Tani's accord to kind of move things along. And that moment is kind of reminiscent in the way that people have incited violence from others rather than committed it themselves. That act of violence is more in tune with Tanya's desire than any moral failing of Randall Connolly. Whereas with things like Brad, Brad's obsession with Olive is very much focused on the fact that he's, you know, the dumb high school jock archetype. Mm-hmm. And then Ramsey is one of my favorite characters, right? And I absolutely hate that man to death, but <laughs> he's one of the only characters that is completely in control of himself throughout that entire book. And he just does it because that's what he believes in. And so what he incites, you know, he believes in the suffering of man because of their sins or their bad habits, whatever, whenever that shift changes, he still judges man for their shortcomings. And so anything that he does is based on that. And so by and large, a lot of the acts that are committed in that book are in turn kind of linked to that character's, you know, failings. I think that Drew Russell's kind of an exception to the rule. He kind of serves as a catalyst for a lot of things for Mr. Tanya throughout that novel. And his downfall is simply based on the fact that, you know, he's got anger inside of him and that darkness and Tanya pulls that out. Timothy Timms, I think, is a good example of that too. Sometimes people do terrible things not for any reason other than the fact that they have ugly inside of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think at least for me anyway, probably the reason that uh, Ramsey is such a compelling character is because, like you said, he has a code so to speak. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the reason most psychopaths are really compelling to me. Like 
Hannibal Lecter, mm-hmm. he only ate people that he didn't consider equals. And Anton Chigur, I don't know quite how to put his code into words, but he kind of lived by not so much chance, but that there is fate involved in the universe. But, you know, he would use something like chance, like the flipping of a coin. So, yeah, yeah. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but I think Ramsey and psychopaths in general, although I don't know that I would call Ramsey a psychopath, are just so He's pretty close. Pretty close, you think? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, he does everything under his own fruition, and he really just needed the excuse to do it kind of deal. He's representative of the people that are the worst of the worst. They have these horrible thoughts, and they just need the reason to do it. They don't even need the push. They just Mm. need someone to tell them it's okay. And so making him you know, a central part of that dichotomy of religion that I discussed in the book between him and Isaac, you know, making him the bad part was very purposeful because I find that, you know, across both boards, there's a terrible side of religion and a good side of religion. And they both kind of represent the greatness of humanity and the terrible aspects of humanity at the same time. So, so you're saying his religious fervor didn't lead to grandiosity. He used religion to allow him to engage in grandiose acts like 100 percent, yes and so religion was a way for him to be superior to other people and then even at the point where he kind of loses that he retains that superiority over them and just kind of shifts the meaning behind it from religion to mr tanya and Mm. you know it's all an excuse for him to spit hellfire and brimstone and hate and rage and really just spread the horrible beliefs that he has and like i said just an excuse for that yeah well the chief of police brock lowry was an interesting character because he seemed to be above reproach which is odd considering he had such a powerful position you know money and power corrupt but yeah even though he was morally strong he was physically weak due to a heart condition so was the heart condition intended to be his Achilles heel because it was a way to give him a weakness that didn't involve his moral strength or moral character? And can you expand on that element of his character? So for Brock Lowry, the moment that I decided to write this book, Brock Lowry was going to be a central figure throughout the whole book. I knew that I wanted him to be like my knight in shining armor, good guy. And I mentioned dichotomy with religion. Dichotomy exists a lot in that book. There's two sides of every coin. And so Drew Russell is kind of like a situation where he's what I view as like the darker side of someone in that profession. And while Drew wasn't really a bad person necessarily before Tanya got a hold of him, all the things that Tanya pulls out of these characters all exist. Mm. So I viewed Tanya as almost like a catalyst of like a future event. So if it wasn't Tanya in 15 years, if Drew Russell became sheriff, maybe he would have been all of those things, those terrible, violent things, you know, brutal, all of that. Whereas Brock Lowry is the person that I view gets into it for the right reason. You know, he wanted to do the right thing all the time. He really cared deeply for his town. Originally, he was a sheriff. And then because of the way that I structured it, we changed it to chief of police based on like how it actually works. And so Chief Lowry was always meant to be kind of the perfect example. He's always meant to be like the opposite of Tanya almost. Whereas, you know, Tanya is this force of evil and Lowry is the thing that 
people should believe in. And so when I gave him his heart condition, it wasn't a situation where I really um, put a whole lot of thought into the deeper meaning of it. But anytime that I write something and go back, I'm like, okay, there's a lot of really cool, like, behind the scenes stuff, a lot of really cool meaning behind this that I didn't even realize when I was plotting it all out. When I gave him his heart condition, I just wanted to humanize him a little bit because I didn't want it to be a situation where Brock Lowry is traipsing around Rappahannock Falls when all this is going down, you know, shooting all the bad guys and Mm. just like a superhero almost. I wanted to make him more accessible and more of a human being than that. And anytime that you're dealing with police procedural, it's a challenge not to make your main character almost seem like a superhero. Yeah. Alex Cross is a good example of that with James Patterson. <laughs> the man is like above <laughs> anything, you know? Yeah. And so that's something that I'm really aware of. Anytime that I'm writing these characters that are in a position where they could be really overpowered in a couple of different senses, even if it's not supernatural. And when I wrote this book, too, I mentioned before that I was really tired of the predictability of things. Plot armor is officially like my least favorite thing in any media now. If I'm watching a movie or reading a book and something happens and it kind of deviates from the concept of plot armor, I immediately love it. When I decided to write this book, I had just finished reading Nosferatu by Joe Hill. And there's a scene in the middle of the book where a certain character is hit in the back with like a sledgehammer. And I was like, this is incredible. This is such a cool idea to do that so early into the book. And it was kind of a red herring. It didn't play out the way that I thought it did. And it was a disappointment for me. And it actually kind of like soiled that book for me for like two years. And then I went back and I was like, I really love this book now. But like I said, I wanted to make Brock this human being that even though he's, you know, he's above that reproach, he's like a superhero in his own right, because he has nothing in him that Tanya can really use to his full ability to bring him to his side. I wanted to make it so that he was still very much a realistic character and making him humanly weak, mortally weak was a good way to do that. So I know you mentioned it in the book, and you also just gave an example of it now, but for those that haven't read the book and aren't familiar with it, can you kind of just give a brief description of what you mean by plot armor? So anytime that you are reading or watching something, so say you're watching like, you know, The Walking Dead, and you're watching Rick Grimes, and he's in this mortal struggle against the zombies, he's surrounded, you know, the walkers are getting him but you know he's going to get out of it because it's Rick Grimes. Mm. And there's a certain degree of that in anything that you're working with. And so I wanted to kind of try to deviate from this book a little bit. And talking so much about it, I feel like is a little bit of a spoiler in and of itself. But there are multiple characters in different parts of the narrative. There are focal points of that. And you really expect them to make it to a certain level or a certain point in the book, and they don't. And so that was something that I consciously decided. The first words that I put on the page, I knew that I wanted to write a book that kind of captured the unpredictability of life. Because everybody's kind of the main character of their own story, but sometimes that unceremoniously ends. And so I wanted to kind of convey that in this narrative. And that was one of my number one things. Every scene that I wrote, I kept that in mind. And can you go back to and expound on when you were talking about Brock Lowry actually being the police chief rather than sheriff? Because I thought of that when I was reading and I was like, you know, normally in rural areas, the the lone guy is a sheriff. 
But then I was like, yeah, if I ask him that, it's going to sound like I'm splitting hairs. But then you just mentioned it. Correct. About- and so with a couple editors that I worked with, based on the locale of the police station and certain aspects of the department, it was more of a police station than it was a sheriff situation. Okay. And so it's kind of like a situation where without doing massive rewrites and moving the sheriff's department out of like the main area of town, it would have to switch to chief of police and police station, that kind of thing. And so I went ahead and made that decision because it's pretty rural, but I also imply that there's a pretty good amount of people in that town. Mm-hmm. And so it still works. It's kind of a suspension and disbelief, but based on the research that I did after the fact and after that was pointed out to me, I was like, I think we can pull this off and this is completely acceptable. So, gotcha. but yeah, originally I envisioned him as sheriff because I just like the name of Sheriff Lowry. I think that's <laughs> now he's Chief Lowry and I'm completely fine with that. Well, I mean, Chief Lowry, Lowry is, would it be Scottish? I think so. Yeah, more of a a, a police kind of surname. Yeah. So, yeah, I think yeah. Chief Lowry works just as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I really liked the character of Olive. She wanted to be popular, but simultaneously hated the fact that she wanted to be popular and even more so hated what she did to be popular. She was engaged in a fight with her character flaws before the villain rolled into town and eventually overcame them instead of succumbing to them when the villain did come into town, even when subjected to the trauma of a mass shooting. It seemed like the rest of the people with strong character were attempting to hold on to keep from succumbing to the influence of the villain. And I heard you say the name, so I guess I can refer to him as Mr. Tanya. Yeah. What inspired you to make one of the strongest characters in the story a teenager that was in the throes of the angst of adolescence? There's a couple things. I think that one thing that I really dislike in media is the fact that usually when you're dealing with younger or teenage characters, there's a certain like portrayal of them that they're just not going to make good decisions or they're in these situations where like they're so angsty, they make stupid decisions and stuff like that, or almost like they just don't have the lack of maturity that's conveyed to them. And so there are plenty of instances in everyday life where you might meet like a 16, 17 year old kid and they have a lot of maturity to them and they're trying to make the right decisions. And so I kind of wanted to lean into that. That goes back into the whole like predictability thing, choosing Olive to be one of the strongest characters in the narrative was such a conscious decision because I wanted to have that feeling because there are plenty of instances where I've met teenagers and I feel like they're more mature than their parents, as terrible as that is. (laughs) And so I chose Olive for that. And I also wanted Olive because I felt like Olive was in a situation where she was 100% susceptible to Mr. Tanya before that moment. Tanya inadvertently creates one of his adversaries through that act of getting Connolly to commit that mass shooting in chapter five. And so I feel comfortable saying that because it's so early on, but her being involved in that and that being the catalyst for her growth and for her certainty in making her changes. That was something that I really wanted to convey because sometimes, you know, these horrific events happen and they're traumatizing and they're terrible, but sometimes people do kind of choose to make the best of that situation and they come out stronger for it. Olive 100% needed therapy. She had a lot of problems from that moment. She doesn't have it all together, but she decides that she's kind of going to make lemonade out of the lemons. Mm. And she takes a hard introspective look at herself in that moment and realizes that she doesn't want to be the person that she thought she was or that she thought she wanted to be. So she makes those changes and Tanya inadvertently creates somebody that he can't 
wrap his hands around essentially can't get into their head. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of the things that she does to be popular, the yeah. character of Brad is a bonehead jock that all of begrudgingly dates because he's Mr. Popular. I forget. Was he the captain of the football team or something? Team, yeah. yeah. He was your typical high school jock archetype. And that was really, really purposeful too, because that was the flip side of her character. You know, she comes to the realization that there's a whole lot more to life than what she was chasing. Hmm. Whereas Brad is 100% all in on that. Well, the character of Isaac was a minister whose church burnt down, which caused him to lose his faith. And I feel like I remember in the book that before that he was having a crisis of faith. Is that correct? Or am I misremembering that? No, you are 100% remembering that. He was kind of uncertain that he was cut out for leading a congregation. And he kind of viewed the burning down of his church as like a sign of God almost. He didn't really stop believing in God, but he stopped believing who was his calling. And he just kind of got disillusioned with the whole thing. Like Mm -hmm. he didn't really buy into it like his father did before him. And he kind of got pushed into that role. And then when it burned down, he took that as a sign that it wasn't meant to be that way. And he just kind of took an entire step away from faith rather than doubling down or even looking for answers in it himself. Yeah. Well, it kind of reminded me of Harvey Keitel's character in From Dusk Till Dawn, where the preacher that I believe in the movie, he lost his wife. So he kind of had. Oh, a cri- OK. Yes, I remember that. Yeah, he kind of had a crisis of faith. And he had to recover it to defeat an evil force. And, you know, in the Bible, you have the character of Job whose faith is tested, but he never really loses it or becomes disillusioned, no matter how much tragedy befalls him. So where do you think the archetypal character of the man of the cloth that loses his faith or becomes at the very least disillusioned by it, recovers it and kicks the ass of evil? Where do you think it comes from, I guess, would be the question. (laughs) I think it's really representative of real life in a lot of ways. I feel like a lot of the people in religion that I've met that are really down to earth and are in it for the right reasons are people that have struggled with something in their life. And so I think that if you've never had your faith tested, you probably don't believe as strongly as you should, maybe. As crazily like backwards as that might sound, but I think that... If you fully believe in something and something horrible happens, it's hard to reconcile the event that occurred with a loving God. And I think that that is something that I wanted to represent with Isaac. And I loved writing Ramsey and Isaac. They're my two favorite characters in the novel. I loved writing them because they start out in opposite places and somewhere along the way they switch places. Mm. And that was just such an amazing thing. Ramsey doesn't really believe in God in the way that he pretends to be. He threw himself into it, but he believes in retribution and he believes in punishment for all these people doing wrong. And God is an avenue for that rather than something that he truly puts his faith in. Whereas Isaac truly believed in God, but he had doubts and he couldn't reconcile why God would burn down his church if he wanted Isaac to lead people and to do that. And so Isaac is on this really shaky foundation and Ramsey appears to be on this really solid one. And throughout the narrative, Tanya's introduction into the story reinforces Isaac's original beliefs and Ramsey abandons them. Yeah. 
And what was it you said, how can somebody say they have faith if it's never been tested? Is that what it was? That's what I said, yeah. Yeah, it reminded me of, uh, I don't know if you've ever read the book. It's by, I forget the gentleman's name. He's a Jewish rabbi. He wrote a book called Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. Never heard of it. Yeah, it's an interesting book. It kind of answers that question like when something bad happens to you and you say, why me? Kind of the answer to the question is, why not you? <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, the two ministers we've been talking about, obviously, Isaac and Ramsey, one good, one bad, as you describe in the book, one shepherd, one warrior. So these guys actually represent my love-hate relationship with Christianity in general. I'm not a Christian per se, but I love ministers mm -hmm. that preach a message of love and give sermons yep. that give you pragmatic guidance for real life, as opposed to evangelical ministers, which I'm sure there are some of those who are reasonable and their hearts in the right place. But all of my experience has been hellfire brimstone sermons. They have the sole means of achieving spiritual wholeness and anyone that doesn't agree with them is damned. So yeah. I love the fact in your book that the shepherd is a force of good and the warrior is a force of evil. And from the sounds of it, you share that same sentiment. What kind of experience have you had with those two flavors of religion? So that's a good one. So, <laughs> so there was a point where I went to, when I was going to church with my foster parents regularly from like all my teenagers, I was like, it was excruciating for me because it was a situation where I think that the lead pastor there did not have the right point of view and right mindset. They, he kind of spoke a lot about damnation. It wasn't quite hellfire brimstone, but it wasn't a message of love either. And I'll never forget, I was maybe 18 at the time. And I would sometimes help out in kids' church just to like not be in the regular sermons anyway, and just like run the sound stuff over there and that kind of deal. But I'll never forget, there was this uh, guy in our youth group, and he listened to like old school rock. Like he loved like Kiss and Led Zeppelin and ACDC. And that was like his thing. He loved classic rock music. He loved like hair metal too. And I'll never forget that throughout the entirety of my time in that youth group, some of the volunteers that helped out the older guys, give them a hard time and say, you can't wear those shirts in here. You know, it's not Christian, all that stuff, which never sat right with me anyway. But we actually had the lead pastor call him out in the middle of big church, like the whole church. He didn't give the name, but he said, I know that there's a youth that's idolizing classic rock music above God. And, you know, we need to stop that. We need to get out of it. And that was the moment that I stopped going to like regular church service there because that's not what it's about. I think that that's disgusting for someone to do, especially to a kid. Mm -hmm. And so I started helping out in kids church because the guy there kind of had the right mindset. He got his degree and stuff later in life and became a kid's pastor at like 30. And he had like a kind of rough teen years, early 20s. And he was 100%, you know, leading with a kind hand with the kids. But any interaction I watched him have with older people was kind of the same way. It was like, you know, I'm going to support you. I might not agree with it, but I'm going to support you and love you. I'll tell you why I don't think it's right, that kind of deal. And I could respect that. And so that experience really defined my desire to write about both sides of religion. And then I think that Joel Osteen and like all those big mega church guys were a huge inspiration on Ramsey's mentality. Ramsey obviously didn't run a mega church in the book, but his mentality was to use and abuse a hundred percent. He used people to kind of try to build a platform that was failing to 
give his words meaning. And I just was really inspired by both those instances, like, you know, the using and abuse and the people that are coming at it from the wrong way to just kind of spread hate. That was the basis of Ramsey. And then Isaac was the one good pastor that I worked with. And then there was a couple other ones that I've met that were really great. But those are my two experiences. Nothing quite so drastic as James Ramsey, though. <laughs> <laughs> Halloween time, did you guys do like Hell House plays where people... Oh, God, no. Thank God. Thank oh. God. Thank God for that. Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I got to take that part stuff in... That was wild. I got to take part in one of the... Well, I didn't get to. I was forced to, to be one of the actors. And oddly enough, I was one of the guys that got dragged to hell, so... Uh, oh, it's telling of what's going to happen in the future, I guess, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> You're going to start the the Dark Mind podcast, you heathen fuck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the afterword, you write that the villain represents lying politicians, as you've alluded to already, mm-hmm. that act as though they care about their constituents, but in a sense, rip away their inhibitions and let their evil inclinations shine through. So how did you develop the villain's appearance with the derby hat specifically? I thought that was, I mean, the way you describe it and the way I envisioned it was creepy and very off-putting. But like, how did you, you know, it was like an evil Charlie Chaplin or something like that, you know? And honestly, I kind of modeled him after Charlie Chaplin. It was kind of a funny thing for me. And I wanted to kind of convey that he was out of touch which is kind of reminiscent of a lot of politicians in our day and age. I mean, like Congress is full of all of these old people that have no fucking idea what's going on with the everyday person. <laughs> and so I wanted to make him appear outdated because I believe that a lot of people in our politics are outdated. And so that was the inspiration behind that. They're not in touch with what we do or what we need as a people. And for the most part, a lot of the lower middle class suffer because of it. If we had people that were more in touch, more up to date, we would be in a better situation, I think, in total as a country. And so when I was drafting up his character, I was like going through the ideas. And Tanya was probably the person I spent the most time on as far as appearance by a mile of any book that I've written, because I knew that I needed him to fit the theme really well. And I didn't want it to be a situation where like, He's like just wearing a suit with a red tie or a suit with a blue tie or anything like that. Nothing strictly political for one side or the other, because I think that there are problems with both. But I knew that I needed to be representative of that, since even though I believe that what he does is something that a lot of people outside of politics and positions of power do, the catalyst of that was watching that sort of thing occurring so much. And so I decided to go with like the bowler hat and the Charlie Chaplin feel because I think that that's the most out-of-date idea I could come up with because mm. Charlie Chaplin is just classic in a way that no other you know visual media is classic. He is like the end-all, be-all. If you think like, hey, what about those old movies you think, Charlie Chaplin? Mm. Yeah, black and white, silent pictures. And you, know, and you know, to speak on what you said about people in politics being so out of touch with the people... What they do obviously indicates that, but what they say indicates it as well. And what they say, you know, is coming from political advisors. So who yeah. are these political advisors? Like, what yeah. is, how old or young are they? And what are they using as research reference? You know, percent. <laughs> you would think you could find somebody that would at least give you the ability to lie effectively. Even the shit yeah. they say is 
garbage. Like, what are you talking 100%. about? <laughs> well, so throughout the story, it was hard to tell who was going to succumb to the influence of Mr. Tanya and when. And so I wanted to know what was it that Mr. Tanya did or what was it that happened that put people in the position to be influenced by him at that particular moment? Because I know preceding one character's fall from grace, so to speak, it's preceded by him looking over and seeing the Viscount pulling up, obviously containing Mr. Tanya. So in that case, it seems like he showed up in person and whatever happened was kind of the impetus for his engagement and violence. So like what exactly happened? How did that take place? So some of the scenes don't take place on page, but Tanya's ability is all based on touch. And okay. so like when he shakes Timothy Timms's hand, which is I'm so proud of that name. It's the worst name I could ever come up with. <laughs> Timothy Timms is terrible. No wonder he hated his name. But but um when that's he enough to make you with, homicidal right there. <laughs> I know. And so when Timms touches Tanya's hand, that's the moment where everything starts to go downhill. The scene when another character is in the restaurant and he's looking for what's going on, it ends before you see him fall under Tanya's sway, but it occurs because Tanya comes there and touches him. And so throughout the book, there's a scene mm. with the selectmen where he shows up where the selectmen are having a meeting to discuss what happened at King's Market. And he goes around the table and he's randomly touching people. And so it's a situation where I kind of view it as like almost like electrical currents, almost like it's like mm. not necessarily exactly that, but it's like energy passing from him into them. And what makes them susceptible is their trauma, their anger, their rage, all of these negative things that can manifest at any given moment into something terrible. And the way that I always kind of viewed it is that there's some people that Tanya could go to at any given day and get into their heads and rip those inhibitions away. Like Timothy Temps, I think is one. And then there are other characters, which I think we're going to touch on later, that it's kind of situational. Mm -hmm. And there's a, even a character in the book where it's not quite so absolute. He tries to do it, but it doesn't work the way that it's supposed to because it's not so cut and dry. It's not black and white. You know, Not everybody has enough evil in them. Not everybody has enough good in them. There are people that fall kind of into that middle ground. Mm -hmm. And so Tanya can kind of see that in people. He's been around for a very, very long time. He could probably write a book on psychology just based on you know body language and the way people talk, the things that people say, that kind of deal. And so he's gotten very good at being able to see people. And so he kind of uses that intimate knowledge of humanity to his benefit. But as things continue to spiral kind of out of his control in Rappahannock Falls, he elicits this horrible event and multiple horrible events that kind of bring the town to its knees. But those wild cards in Lowry, Isaac, and Olive, he can't really say that he can control. And in desperation, he goes after a certain character and it doesn't necessarily work. That character tries to flee town and get away from Tanya, which, you know, may or may not work. Read the book and find out. But it's a situation where I think all of us have darkness inside of us. And it's a situation where if you catch the person on the right day, you can elicit a certain response. You might never elicit 364 other days of the year kind of deal. Kind of goes mm. to like the whole Alan Moore one bad day with the Joker kind of thing. Mm. Like that's kind of like the direction I took with Mr. Tanya where it's um sometimes it's situational. A lot of times he can just do it with no problem. People constantly have horrible things inside of them every single day. And those people are Tanya's bread and butter. 
So when you say there are particular situations where something dark inside of somebody, if you get them just the right day, just the right time, you can bring that out of them to where you wouldn't ever have been able to do that at any other time. Is Tanya, I think so. Is Tanya somehow intuitive enough to suss that out of people? I think that it goes into human psychology. Like, say you go into work and your coworker is usually bright and chipper, and then suddenly they're not quite so much. Mm-hmm. Something might have happened, you know, possibly their wife died, something like that. I mean, that is more than enough mm-hmm. to kind of wear down that strong resolve to be a good person, a, a positive person. And so in certain events, I think that would be absolutely the case. I think that with Mary, who is in the prologue of the book, A Tale About Ice Cream, I think that she had a lot of rage inside of her, but that was only brought out of her because of the fact that she was reliving everything that happened with her grandmother, the horrible memories, the trauma that her mother endured at her grandmother's hands, her grandmother's stroke at the beginning of the book that hospitalizes her. It reopens those old wounds. And Mm. that's what allows the darkness to kind of come out for her. Great way to start the book, by the way. I was like, holy fuck, I got to read this. <laughs> I'm 100% positive that that prologue is what got me a full manuscript request. I, yeah, I wrote that yeah. prologue and I was like very happy with it. I wanted it to kind of be shocking. My first book is very slow burn, haunted house horror, really literary in a lot of ways. And so when I decided to write this book, which was originally actually titled Mana, and we ended up changing to The Devil Within Us All because we wanted something more horror. Yeah, Mana sounds very spiritual. (laughs) Yeah. And so it it fits the theme of the book really well. But I think that The Devil Within Us All is like the perfect fit for theme and to convey the genre because that's really what the book is about. It's about the evil inside of everyone and how that can be drawn out by the right people. Yeah. Well, I think... The character that you alluded to at one point that wasn't so cut and dry was Nolan's character. And I loved the character of Nolan. He was a teenager, but he reminded me of myself when I was in my early 20s. I drove a motorcycle and uh, I considered myself a nihilist. (laughs) I even got (laughs) the uh, nihilist end, the backwards end tattooed on my (laughs) chest. And uh, he unfortunately... I don't know. Is it a spoiler to say he was influenced by the villain? No, I think it's okay to say, because I think that early on, I kind of allude to the fact that, you know, he wants to be good, but he conveys this like tough guy act. And he's Mm -hmm. got a lot of darkness in him because of his past with his father and stuff like that. So I touch on that with the intention of kind of foreshadowing to the fact that, you know, he's not one of these people that are completely immune. And I think that most of the other good characters in the book that aren't referenced are in the same boat as him. You've got Gene, you've got Jackie, you've got all these different characters that are not ultimately bad characters and Tanya never approaches, but they're characters that are, you know, morally upright, but they don't have that same resolve that Isaac and Lowry and Olive eventually attains. Okay, so that was kind of going to be my question was, because it seemed like the only intentionally, quote-unquote, wrong thing he did was skipping school but you're saying because of the dark history of his past which wasn't his fault but kind Mm -hmm. of left him vulnerable to attack so yeah so think about it like this i mean like people that sustain a traumatic event whether it's you know abuse at the hands of a parent which is what nolan dealt with 
And when you don't really address those problems, Nolan never went to therapy. You mm. can tell that by kind of like the discussion. I guess it's never Sid, but I kind of always envisioned it. You know, they live in the poor side of town. You know, mm. his mother chain smokes and just kind of, you know, she's caring, but it's a bad situation. And so there are multiple moments throughout the book, I think, where Nolan kind of like almost lashes out in anger a little bit at certain other characters. And it's mm-hmm. that darkness. It's that, it's that trauma that has never really been addressed. And it's hard for anyone that age to address those things. I know that with my past, you know, I didn't get a good handle on anything that occurred in my life until probably my mid-20s. And it's just hard to kind of work through it all and make sense of it. And no one was representative of that part of my life in a lot of ways where, you know, he wanted to do the right thing. He was a good guy. But at the end of the day, he still had that darkness that he hadn't dressed. And Tanya tried to use that for his gain. And that was solely as a backup plan to get to Olive in the event that, you know, Brad fails. Yeah. So it's not your fault that you got a an infection, but at some point it becomes your fault because you don't get antibiotics, <laughs> so to speak. I guess you could say that. I think that, you know, no one gets a pass. He was still a kid, but, um, but yeah. I think well, that... Well, yeah, um, yeah. When I say at some yeah. point, I mean like adult. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. So it's like, you know, I think at a certain point, like a really bad situation provides understanding. And then if you don't seek out help and don't try to better yourself, it becomes an excuse, I guess. And yeah. that's speaking from my own life experience kind of deal. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously we've been talking about darkness, whether it was some inherent thing or as the result of trauma. But among those traits that we've discussed, was there a common trait that all the characters that were influenced by Mr. Tanya shared? So, uh, I mean, I think that most of the characters experienced, you know, not really too much of a commonality between them. I think anger and rage was a pretty common one against with several of them. Mm-hmm. But overall, it's really about peace of mind, really, is kind of how I viewed it. Like, Lowry didn't really have a whole lot of regret in him. You know, he felt like he's doing the right thing. He worked really hard at it. Isaac was riddled with regret, but for the right reasons. Isaac was lost, but he was foundationally a good person. He didn't try to do horrible things. And his faith in God didn't protect him, but I really think that it was like his perspective on everything. He lived with everything that happened, you know, losing his dad, the church burning down, his crisis of faith. None of that was because of anything he necessarily did. And so selecting the couple people that I did, and I think that, you know, as I ramble on, I think that honestly, (laughs) there are certain people in this world that no matter what you throw at them, they seem inherently good. There's very few of them. But there are some people that just stand up in the face of adversity, stand up in the face of horrible things and they do the right thing and that was isaac for olive you know i think that olive's whole reason that tanya became afraid of her in the end is because of that resolve she was so certain of herself after king's market that she was going to do the right thing she was not going to go down that path and she was going to reinvent herself and it's a response to her trauma almost and so like she was a very good person obviously but i also think that when I was drafting her character up, I imagined a wall coming up on her in that moment. Like she kind of shuts down a little bit in some ways. She walls that part of herself off. And that's why Tanya is afraid of it because he doesn't feel like he can necessarily use that against her at that moment. In mm. five years, it could be completely different. And 
So picking these characters, a lot of it was even instinctual. When I started drafting up characters, I knew certain characters beyond a doubt were going to be bad. Ramsey was going to be bad. Tim's was going to be bad. I actually didn't know what direction I was going to go with with Drew Russell until I started actually writing the first chapter. And then I had to go back and work a little bit on what I wanted him to do. But then there were some characters, like I knew that Lowry was going to be a force of good. Mm-hmm. I knew that Isaac was going to be a force of good. And Olive was one that I didn't realize how much I was going to love until I got to writing her. And she's definitely my third favorite character in that book to write, probably tied with Nolan, honestly, because I loved writing Nolan. But but Olive was a situation where she was going to kind of be almost one of these side characters, almost, where they weren't influenced by Mr. Tanya, but they were still on the side of good, essentially. And so to answer your question from 10 minutes before now, <laughs> not really too many common traits. I really just went with my gut instinct on some of it and then addressed the different things that had occurred in their life or different traits that they had that allowed that. So Tanya with Drew Russell for one instance, to throw another minor spoiler out of there, he plays on Russell's jealousy. In a specific scene, he's talking to Tanya and they're talking about his girlfriend, kind of girlfriend, possibly being with someone else. And Tanya's filling his head with these thoughts. And that is what Tanya uses to get to Russell, is that insecurity that he's experiencing. And it kind of gives him a way in. It's kind of like a crack in the whole being. And he worms his way into that crack. And so Russell is probably the hardest one he had that he succeeded with, in my opinion. Well, so there are people that are influenced by Tanya that, you know, go straight into committing an act of violence. And then Mm -hmm. there are some people that are influenced but are able to fight him off. Yeah. Am I remembering correctly, was Lowry the only one that Tanya couldn't even get into his head? So, yeah, I mean, he doesn't attempt with Lowry, Isaac, or Olive. He lists those three as his specific threats. But Lowry is the only one where, like you talked about, there was no really like moral flaws in his character. He had no real trouble other than his heart. Uh. Lowry was the one person that, beyond a shadow of a doubt, no matter what happened, Tanya was going to be afraid of. And I drafted him to be that hero for that purpose. They gave him the mortal failing rather than the moral failing. Ah, that's a good way to put it. (laughs) Well, with all the graphic violence in the book, you mentioned in the afterword that one of the most triggering scenes for people is when Tanya talks through the statue of Jesus in the church. And, you know, blasphemy is terrifying because the person or entity that is blaspheming is obviously pure evil. Mm -hmm. Satan himself quoted the word of God to Jesus when he was tempting him in the desert. So what do you say to someone that's offended by what is obviously the portrayal and not endorsement of blasphemy? So it's so funny. I put that in the afterward because I was sure that I was going to have someone say something about it. And almost two months into it. No one has said a word about it, which I can't believe. But my response to that was it was very purposeful, obviously. I think that a lot of these, you know, pastors of super churches and even, you know, people in political realm use the word of God as a means to an end. They don't necessarily believe what they're saying, but they use it to not only endorse what they're saying and doing, but also to make people believe in what they say they're doing. And so... That was really a conscious decision because I think that it's uh, really representative of some of what's wrong with organized religion, the blind following, that kind of deal. Mm -hmm. And that was like really my purpose to that scene. That was the one scene that I 
debated not writing, but it was a scene that I knew that I was going to write from the get-go because it was so important to address that to me because I think it really just captures a lot of what's wrong in the world that I'm addressing in the book. So did I understand correctly that that wasn't based on experience? That was kind of like a prophylactic thing? Oh, no. Yeah, it was not a personal thing. Yeah, I was being prophylactic 100%. I was just... Or proactive, I guess I should say. Yeah. <laughs> prophylactic. As a pharmacy technician, I got I'm, I'm with you. No, I'm with you. But no, it's, it's 100% accurate. Like, I anticipated there to be some backlash because we're talking like the most like potent and obvious sort of blasphemy that I could imagine. And I was really, really nervous about it. I talked to some friends about it. They read the book. One of my fellow Wicked House authors I talked with about Blaine Daigle, he believes. And we talked about it and Blaine's like, listen, I'm confident that people are going to understand what you're going for because it's the two worst characters in your novel. Mm. Like in this moment, like you're not endorsing anything. I actually, I had an editor quit on me because they felt that the book was like misogynistic and racist and homophobic. I was like, you're kind of missing the point. Like it's all the bad characters in that book are a lot of those things, but mm. they're the bad characters. And pretty much from the moment that they step onto the page, the characters that are spurting that rhetoric are established as being not good people. Yeah. And so I was shocked. It was a shocking moment. And then, you know, I was already worried about that. But the response to the book has been really good. I haven't had anybody that has really come back and said any of that stuff because they get the theme. I'm very vocal about the theme when I'm talking about the book. And the book is called The Devil Within Us All. It's about this darkness and this evil inside of us. And unfortunately, that sort of rhetoric is something that we have to face almost daily now. Mm. Yeah, that's the same thing Brett Easton Ellis had to deal with with American Psycho, and he had to tell them the same thing. It's a portrayal, not an endorsement. And yeah. there are certain groups of people that actually uphold Patrick Bateman as like something to aspire to. But it's like, yeah, yeah those are bad people. <laughs> you know? Yeah, 100%. The common denominator is bad people here. <laughs> you <Yes>. know. <laughs> so, well, it's a great book all the way around down to the cover listeners at home definitely check this out but you have a previous work that you've mentioned uh earlier called the man behind the door and yes. looks very interesting can you tell us a little bit about this work so this uh was my first book it was my first project that i ever finished i wanted to be a writer all of my life and i couldn't really accomplish it imposter syndrome was really tough for me. I would get ideas and a lot of time it was inspired by something that I'd seen or whatever. And I would just say, you know, I don't really have anything new to say with this after writing maybe 20 or 30 pages. And I would just quit. And that was just the way it was. The man behind the door came into existence as a way for me to kind of tell my dad's story through the lens of fiction. It was 100% catharsis. And so my long and short of the story, I have like a good like once in spiel for it, it's that it's a psychological thriller with horror elements that focuses on grief, trauma, and addiction with a ghost story spin. And so the main character of that book is heavily based on my dad. So all the real life events that Lee Glasscock deals with are things that my dad struggled with from early childhood trauma to the physical debilitating pain from working construction all of his life, all the way to the opioid addiction and eventually his suicide. And one thing that I always tell people, I'm like, there's a lot of fiction in this book. The way that it goes down in the book 
is not at all how it happened. It's just that those four things were the catalyst of telling that story. And so I built a lot of fiction around it, didn't base really any other characters off of real people. But it was really just an effort for me. On the anniversary of my dad's death, I started it as a way to kind of just evaluate how I was feeling. Because I had changed from being angry about it to kind of more understanding. As I've gotten older, I've realized I'm a lot like him in the better ways. And so that's how that story came to be. I wrote that book, first draft, 45 days in a marathon writing session. I came home every day for four to five hours and just wrote, wrote, wrote. I had to get it out. I had to get it out. My life was was different. (laughs) And I would never go back to that time in my life. But it was like, that was the story that I had to tell. That was the first moment that I ever looked at the blank page and knew that I had something that I had to say rather than just wanting to say something to write a book. And that was the catalyst of the whole author journey. It was uh, really, really rough. It took about 10 rounds of editing to get it into a place ready for publication. It was horrible. I did a lot of the editing myself, and then I had somebody helping me with it at the end. But it was a lot. It was a lot of fixing and a lot of catching errors. And it was so rough. And I didn't plot that one out at all. It just came out like in a consciousness stream. It just happened. And it was, oh, beautiful experience. Really cathartic. There's a scene at the end of that book that still to this day, anytime that I go back and read it, after editing it 10 times and probably reading it four or five times beyond that, I still get teary-eyed and sometimes cry because it's just a beautiful scene and it's something that, that I always like wished could kind of happen. And so it was very much me putting my like blood, sweat, and tears on that page. It was an incredible experience and I was so happy that I did it. And then I actually wrote this book right after that and then I didn't do anything with either of them for like three years, which is crazy. The Devil Within Us All was written in uh, 2019 mm. and it just sat in my folder on my computer for a long time and I didn't do anything with it. I self-published Man Behind the Door in February of last year. And then I had Devil Within Us All, which was Man at the time on my back burner. And I saw the opportunity to submit to Wicked House and it wasn't even fully edited yet. But I said, I'm going to just do it because I'm going to miss the opportunity otherwise. And I got a publishing deal, which is pretty wild. Mm, Very nice. Well, you said the catalyst for your writing was the catharsis that you were achieving yeah. with your father's story. Yeah. But before that, you had stated that you had always wanted to be a writer. Did I hear that right? 100%. So what element of writing attracted you the most as far as making you want to become a writer yourself? So at an early age, I loved the written word. I remember reading like Magic Treehouse in elementary school and working up to Harry Potter before I was out of elementary school, I devoured those books. The experience of reading those books were astounding. I just couldn't get enough of it. And then reading like the inheritance cycle from Christopher Paolini, fantastic. I was huge into fantasy. I always liked horror movies, but didn't read a lot of horror. I was a Goosebumps kid, but I read a lot of stuff that was like on the reading curriculum for school so I could take those stupid tests and try to get a pizza party or whatever. (laughs) And I did a lot of like fantasy stuff. And then in middle school, and this was when things were starting to get bad with my family and stuff like that, I discovered The Gunslinger by Stephen King. I don't remember exactly how it happened. I had heard of Stephen King before. I was interested in it. I walked into a used bookstore and I saw The Gunslinger just sitting like on a random shelf that wasn't like even Stephen King. And I picked it up and I was like, I'm going to get this. And I read that book. And that was the moment that I knew that I not only wanted to write, but I wanted to write horror, even though that book isn't specifically horror. And so I went down the rabbit hole, finished the entire Dark Tower series. And then I remember reading The Stand. And I said, this is exactly the kind of stuff that I want to write Like when I grow Mm -hmm. up. 
and I tried for a long time, like I said, and I just, it's a situation where I think that my life experience was almost like a creative plug in a lot of ways. Like there was a story that I had to tell and I was avoiding it at all costs in some ways. And so I view it as a creative plug because the moment that I decided to face all that stuff and put it on paper and tell my dad's story was like the moment that it's like a whole brand new world opened up for me. And I was like, I'm going to go after this. And there was a point where I stopped believing that I could. I wrote those two books and I didn't do anything with them for a long time. And I remember my now wife, she was my girlfriend at the time. I told her I'd written a book and she was like, let me read it. I don't like to read, but I'll read it. And she read The Man Behind the Door in literally 12 hours. She was at work that night. She worked overnight as a CNA. It was a slow night. She read the whole book at work, except for the last like 50 pages, came home. And rather than going to sleep, she stayed up and finished reading it. Mm. And she was like, you can't not do something with this. She's like, you can't. She's like, I hate reading. She's like, I loved your book. She's like, I know I'm biased, but she's like, it's so good. You have to do something with it. And so I listened to her. I did the work. I figured out all these different things about self-publishing and I put it out there. And that was like the moment that like the whole passion reinvigorated. And now I've got actually two books on my back burner. I'm finishing editing one now and I have to start editing another one. So, So when she read it, she was your girlfriend, you said? She was my girlfriend. We had just started dating. That's how she went from girlfriend to wife. <laughs> <laughs> that, should, that's, that was the moment that I knew. Yes. No, no, um, no. I mean, it's a situation where when we had both gotten out of long-term relationships um, at roughly the same time and we were alone for a little while and then we met each other and it was just like instant click. It's a really surreal thing. And so like I knew pretty quickly that I, you know, of course loved her and it was such an amazing experience because I had never really experienced that, I realized. And then when she read The Man Behind the Door, because previous to that, only one person in my life had read The Man Behind the Door. It was one of my best friends. He like took the time to read it and he like gave me a big hug and he's like, I love you, bro. Like I'm so sorry that you know life happened. But previous to that, I couldn't get anyone else to read it. And like the way that she went after it was just it was the most validating moment of my entire writing journey. Mm. You know, fuck the bestseller status on Amazon, all of that stuff. The moment that she looked at me and she's like, you have to do something with this. This book is amazing and you, you deserve to have it out in the world was the moment that just really will always stick with me on my writing journey. It was the most validating moment after three years of rejections and giving up. Mm, nice. Well, I don't know. I think... Probably Stephen King, you said the gunslinger was what kind of set you off into wanting to be a writer. Would he be the writing influence that's been the most influential? I think in a lot of ways, yeah. Stephen King's my favorite author. He is so prolific. He has so many good books. I always piss people off because I always say I feel like he's a tiny bit overrated because he does have his books that miss unfortunately and I mean mm. anytime you've written over 70 books there's going to be that instance where it's where it just statistical doesn't... inevitability <laughs> yes exactly um, but I mean I love his work I love his writing style I've always referred to King is like the ultimate blue collar writer he writes so well it's got like a low readability level but he crafts these beautiful stories and these beautiful scenes that you can see, but he doesn't give you so much information that it kind of muddles your vision. I think that he has the perfect prose and like his prose is more of an influence on me than anything else. I think that as far as like story influence wise, besides the devil within us all, the devil within us all is heavily King inspired, but prose wise, he inspires me overall. I think that the new wave of horror, both in movies and books has been a huge influence on my writing. I'm just in love with what these creators are doing, especially Jordan Peele. I love Jordan Peele 
to death. Mm -hmm. I think that that sort of thing is a huge influence on my storytelling, but my prose is very, very inspired by King. Well, do you need a particular writing atmosphere? And if so, what is it? And if not, what is one of the strangest places that you write? Oh, man. I literally write anywhere and everywhere. <laughs> it's like <laughs> you my, are. <laughs> I know. It's like just it's hard to find time, of course. And so to put it into perspective, I didn't write consistently for my third book. I started in my third book shortly after The Man Behind the Door came out. It took me a year to write my 60,000 word book because I just didn't write it consistently. Mm. I decided I was going to make a change with that. And so with my fourth book that I just recently finished, I said, I'm going to write an hour a day at work because I get an hour lunch. And then I'm going to squeeze in time here and there. And so I got a 65,000 word manuscript done in about 45 days doing that consistently. And so in the last 45 days, I've written in my break room at work. I've written in the car. Mm -hmm. I've written on the couch. I've written in bed. I think the car has got to be the weirdest place I've written, just like scrunched up in the front seat with my toddler behind me kicking my seat is probably the weirdest place I've written. <laughs> but that's what it took. You know, I was like, I was gung ho about sticking with writing consistently for this book. And it worked. I'm really happy with the new book. And I can't wait to do some work on it and then start querying with it and see what happens with it. Nice. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Or is it? Okay, so <laughs> no, the one that'll be coming out next is, again, a little bit inspired by some experiences with my dad. Um, we used to go camping every year. And it was like a tradition for generations. And mm. so I went with them several times. And so I plugged that into like a monster in the woods kind of story. And so very creature featurey, but I kind of tackle it in a like addressing men's mental health and the stigma around it, how like, especially the older generation of men can't really feel like they can talk about the things that are troubling them and their depression and that kind of thing and get help. So I kind of like, tackled the whole story from that theme. And with my fourth book, I wanted to try my hand at at least influenced cosmic horror. I wouldn't say it's true cosmic horror, but it's definitely influenced by that sort of thing. And it's my first foray into first person for long fiction. And I loved it. I've always been a naysayer against first person for the most part. I love the scope of a story you get from multiple third person point of views. But this new book, I'm just so happy with. But yeah, so tackling it in like a cosmic horror kind of feel to it and a fast pace similar to The Devil Within Us All for this new one too, which I'm really excited about. Nice. Well, you are a pharmacy technician and I'm curious whenever I talk to authors that have um, interesting day jobs, do you feel like the meticulous nature of that job and the exposure to all sorts of different people, because everybody gets sick. I mean, you're not beholden to a particular demographic at all. Yeah. You see everybody. Do you think that helps you in crafting characters? Oh, definitely helps with crafting characters. I see, like you said, I see so many different walks of life with that. And I work at independent pharmacy too. So I'm fortunate because I actually have time where I can spend with the patient. So like when new patients come in the door, I'm usually like the head person coming out and talking to and getting them set up. So I get an opportunity to really get a feel for a lot of different people, which is really neat. And yeah, it's an invaluable thing. Now, someone actually asked me that question like, two weeks ago, like, hey, are you going to quit your job and do like full-time writing? I'm like, I don't know if it would be good to do that because I just get <laughs> such a, I get such an opportunity for some exposure to people. And it's just such an awesome thing. As far as the meticulous nature, I think that honestly, 
it's helped me more with marketing than it has with actual writing. And so, you know, it's pushed me to learn different things. Like I know how to do so many different crazy formulas and spreadsheets. So it helps with the business side of the author business majorly. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, you know, whenever I'm making a post to put up on Facebook or anything like that, I know kind of what I'm looking at as far as like I'm looking for errors, that kind of thing, what's going to be eye catching, that kind of deal. And working in a profession where it's like dealing with the general public is your job and you're dealing with strangers multiple times during the week. It's like, I have zero fear about talking to people at this point. Mm. Mm-hmm. I go out to book signings and I'm like a used car salesman. I'm like, Hey, you need to come talk to me about my book at my table right now. Like, <laughs> and it's like, you it's, regret it, it for the rest of your life. If you don't, that's it, man. Like it's intense. And that's really it. I mean, it's helped me more with like the back end things more than the writing itself. But um, I mean, the meticulous nature does help. I speed read. So I have trouble with editing my own work a lot. And so it doesn't help with that. That's always going to be a problem. But for the marketing side, it's really been invaluable. Interesting. So like as far as the characters, though, the meticulous nature, does it help you when you're writing a character to really focus on the nuance of their body language and stuff like that? I'm following you. Okay, yeah, that does help because, yeah, being a pharmacy technician, rarely does a patient want to be at your pharmacy. They're getting meds. They don't Mm. like that. They don't want to take meds. And so there are times where I can look at a patient and see that there's a problem before there's a problem addressed, and I can kind of nip that in the bud. And so, yeah, 100%. The nuances of body language, the way a person is like kind of pacing in the pharmacy, all those sort of things. Yes, that is something that I have picked up from working in pharmacy because it's like you have to be working on the fly. You have to notice everything going on around you. And 100%, you notice different ticks with a person, that kind of deal. So I'm following you now. Yes, I do agree with that. All right. Gotcha. Well, is there anything you avoid that you feel stifles your creativity? Not really. Um, I don't drink a whole lot or do anything like that when I'm actively working on a work because I feel like if I do, then yeah, I just don't touch the page or anything like that. I try to do everything in moderation just because of my family history anyway. But um, that for sure, not really. Like, I mean, most things don't interrupt the flow at all. I've never thankfully had like real writer's block. If I've ever hit anything that's like writer's block, I know that I need to step away from the page. I have a book I've been working on for like two and a half, three years, and I keep stopping and starting it because I get to a certain point and I'm like, I love these couple first chapters and then it just doesn't click anymore. And so I kind of view it as like my inner creative, my muse telling me like, hey, you're pushing the story in the wrong direction. And so the inception of this original story was radically different than where it's at right now. And I still plan on finishing it hopefully sometime this year, if not beating it next, because I want to put it out in the world and I think it's really good. But multiple times I've started it and I've hit this point where I'm like, I can't write anymore. And it's not that I'm blocked creatively. It's that my inner muse is like, hey, you are not going the right path here. This is not what the story is supposed to be. And I trust my instincts with my writing a lot. I'm a huge fan of Stephen King's on writing. When he said the story writes itself, he is not bullshitting anyone. It is 100% (laughs) true. And so I trust those instincts and they've never seared me wrong yet. So, Mm. Well, 
tell me about your experience with Wicked House Publishing, because I've just been amazed at what an insane knack for recognizing talent they have. I mean, I've had MJ Mars, Blaine Daigle, Andrew Nyberg, you, I mean, just ridiculous talent. Absolutely. 100%. The Broken Places is one of my probably top books of all time. I love mm-hmm. like really creepy folklore and like Blaine has been very vocal about his love of Adam Neville. And that is like felt in every ounce of that story, every line. And it's amazing. And I'm reading through Mobius story right now and I'm loving that. That's definitely got some really awesome horror science fiction vibes to it mm-hmm. that I'm really digging. I've saw someone compare it to the book of accidents by Chuck Wendig and the dark tower by Stephen King. I mm-hmm. definitely get those vibes in it just enough where I'm like, yeah, this is really good. And then my next read is going to be the suffering. I tried to start it on my Kindle once and I lost my Kindle in the move and I didn't find it forever. I finally <laughs> found it. I know. And so with the baby on the way, I plan to do more Kindle reading than paperback reading. So I'll finish Mobius store and then read suffering on Kindle. And I'm excited to get into that because yeah, MJ, everything I've seen from MJ, she's a fantastic author and you're hundred percent right. There's so much talent. I've, I've been really vocal about how humble I feel that I've gotten to take this journey with these guys because it's just incredible. I think that Wicked House is great. I think that beyond Wicked House's knack for talent, they have someone really great running it. Patrick has been really vocal with us about just like, hey, like you guys need to promote yourself. This is how you guys do it. He's been so helpful in that process. Since I published with Wicked House, I've had eons more success than I ever did self-published. And that's because of Patrick's help. And he really cares about the authors and the business. And it's been exactly opposite of what I'd heard about publishing with a traditional publisher, which is, of course, like the publisher, you know, gets your work edited, gets the cover design, gets it on the world, and then it's up to you to figure everything else out. You sell your book, that kind of deal. Patrick has been super helpful. And I think that, you know, Wicked House Publishing is going to be in a really, really wild place in a couple of years. So it's just one gentleman named Patrick. Yes, Patrick. Yeah, Patrick runs Wicked House. Yes. Patrick, is he on Instagram or X? Yeah, the Wicked House page is on there. I recommend everybody follow the Wicked House page on Facebook. It's where everything is most active. But but that's really it. I mean, you know, it's really, you know, it's really like a family environment. It's like if one of us succeeds, we're all going to succeed. And that's like the attitude that is being tackled with it. And I think that's Mm -hmm. incredible. I don't think that there's any other publisher that I've ever heard of that has, you know, been so hands-on and helpful to the authors after publication. Yeah. Well, tell us about this new addition to the family. Yeah, so Violet Eleanor is uh, <laughs> scheduled to enter the world here actually tomorrow. So we're scheduled for to be induced for tomorrow. So we'll be going to the hospital hopefully by tomorrow at 6 if they call us. Worst case, they might push it till Tuesday. But she is coming into the world here very soon. And so we were hoping to meet her early. But as it stands, she's going to be here right on her due date or right after. Right. And so we're excited for sure. I can't wait to dedicate a book to her. <laughs> Nice. Well, what is the life of William F. Gray like outside of writing? So outside of writing, I spend a lot of time with my family. That's 100% something that I enjoy more than anything. It's crazy. Three years ago, you know, I was not on this path at all. I was, you know, pretty much I just like went to work and I came home and hung out with my friends, played video games and just had a good old time and nothing wrong with that. But um, I met Jess and it completely changed me in the best of ways. And so I get to come home and spend time with our son 
and I get to spend time with her and we try to go out and do lots of stuff. And that's really what our focus is on. Sometimes we still play video games together. Jess is also a gamer. And so we want to get the new Texas Chainsaw game. Oh, nice. Yeah, man. I cannot wait to hack and slash in that. But, <laughs> but <laughs> first um, person but, slasher. <laughs> that's it, yeah. But um, I think the games would be great. But yeah, my life is really focused on family. And that's something that is really important to me. It's something that I was missing for me. I always wanted my own family and I didn't really put any stock into it after I was like 21. I just was living in the moment and really just getting by. And now in just three years, we've moved into a bigger house and we spend all of our time together and she pushes me in such wonderful ways to succeed with not just the writing thing, but just in every way and makes me a better person. So beyond all of that, I sometimes play music, not a lot, I focus on writing too much, but I play mm-hmm. guitar, bass, and drums and still enjoy listening to music. I listen to a lot of folk and a lot of heavy metal, which is contradicting, but <laughs> then I work like 40, 45 hours a week. So that takes mm-hmm. up a lot of my time, unfortunately. Yeah. All right. Well, William, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, man. You too. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? Yeah, for sure. So follow me on Facebook at William F. Gray. It's just my author name. And also, if you go to my website, WilliamFGrayFiction.com, you can sign up for my newsletter and you get a free sample of The Band Behind the Door, plus a couple other goodies, like a little prequel short story that I wrote and a Behind the Man Behind the Door segment, which kind of just discusses my reasoning behind the book really more in depth and some of my experiences with my dad both positive and negative and so so some cool behind the scenes things there too and the cost of email it's pretty cool reward nice all right well listeners at home all links are in the description and william thank you again for joining me all right i'll talk to you later man and thank you to everyone that tuned in If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday when I will be joined by a writer that takes you on a horrifying journey through the dark side of parenthood. So until then, stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. Give me my space, I'm in my pride I was a prisoner, all of the mind Now I'm a traveler, leading the line They wanna cut me, I'm bleeding divine Home of the greed, land of the slaves No, we ain't free, still we do great No, we ain't free, still we do great Yeah, Still we do great I gotta say it and say it and say it again Me and the devil ain't making amends I've been a rebel since Lego and friends I gotta make it and make it and spin I set the trend, king of the fall Home of the winner, by spring I'll be gone I don't be putting it all on the ground So they never know what the hell I'll be on my way
Pick your spot, pick your poison, pick some cotton, pick my brain. Pick your spot, pick your poison, pick some cotton, pick my brain. Get on my way, I need space to get.